Welcome to Rock and Roll High School. In-depth, personal conversations with the most legendary figures in the history of contemporary music. Come with us as we explore the stories behind the albums and songs that have become the soundtrack of our lives. Here's your host, Pete Ganbark. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Rock and Roll High School. Our guest this week is singer, songwriter, guitarist, photographer, actor, and philanthropist Brian Adams. Brian's songs are known by heart all over the world, as he sold close to a staggering 100 million albums to date. His massive hits include Cuts Like a Knife, Run to You, Summer of 69, Heaven, Everything I Do, I Do for You, and the smash duet with the iconic Tina Turner, It's Only Love. His work has brought him multiple accolades, including 20 Juno Awards from 56 nominations, 15 Grammy Award nominations, and three nominations for an Oscar for songs he wrote for several feature films. Brian's relentless worldwide touring schedule has seen him on the road almost constantly since the early 80s, and he still plays to sold-out crowds everywhere. Outside of music, Brian is an accomplished photographer, earning an honorary fellowship from the Royal Photographic Society, and has lent his humanitarian talents to organizations ranging from Amnesty International to Greenpeace. He also runs the Brian Adams Foundation, largely funded by Brian himself, which provides financial grants to support bettering the lives of those in need. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Rock and Roll High School. Very happy to be welcoming our special guest today, our good friend, yeah. Brian Adams. Hi, Brian. Hey, Pete. How you doing? Good. Nice to see you, man. You too. And I'm um, excited to talk to you. We've never really done this. You and I have worked together, but we've never really done this where we talk about the history of your music and you know what it's meant to all of us and, and how you got your start and the craft and, you know, really looking forward to uh, digging into it with you. Get a pillow. <laughs> so I like to start sometimes talking about accolades because our listeners sometimes may not have the context for the amazing things that you've done. So stop me if I get anything wrong here, but... 16 Grammy nominations, including one coming up this year for your latest album, So Happy It Hurts, um, which is your first Grammy nomination since the late 90s, which is exciting. You've been nominated for three Academy Awards, five Golden Globes, an astounding 63 Juno Awards. You've won a ridiculous 21, which is the second most of all time. Do you know who you're right behind? Um, Rush? Nope. You are one ahead of Celine Dion and two or three behind Anne Murray. Oh, I love Anne. But at least she, she's cut one of your songs. I love Anne. There you go. And you've sung with everyone from Tina Turner to Sting, from Rod Stewart to Elton John to Barbra Streisand to Pavarotti. You're nominated this year for induction, uh, which I would 
editorially add long overdue induction into the Songwriters Hall of Fame. And so we're uh, crossing our fingers for you there. In the U.S., you've had 22 top 40 hits on the Billboard Hot 100, including four number ones. And I didn't realize until I was prepping that all four of your number ones have a couple of things in common. They're all ballads and they were all part of movies. Which is okay. yeah, which is um, which is kind of crazy when you think about it. You are <laughs> Canadian, according to the RIAA here in America. Your album and single sales are over twenty five million copies globally. It's somewhere between seventy five and a hundred million records. Only your accountant knows for sure, including two diamond certified albums in Canada. And guess how many diamond certified albums Anne Murray has? Zero. I don't know what to say. <laughs> Other artists that have recorded your songs, I will take a deep breath. Loverboy, Kiss, Joe Cocker, 38 Special, Ted Nugent, Roger Daltrey, Neil Diamond, Tina Turner, Bonnie Raitt, Rod Stewart, Carly Simon, Meatloaf, Anne Murray, Celine Dion, Michael Bublé, our friend and Atlantic recording artist Rob Thomas, and the legendary greatest voice of all, Aretha Franklin. So that's kind of the preamble. Did I miss anything? I guess that wraps it up then, doesn't it? <laughs> Thank you very much. One thing I didn't realize is that even though you were born in Canada, your parents are British. I didn't know that. Yeah, they are. And your dad emigrated from the UK to Canada to join the military, is that right? They emigrated in 1952. And as you can imagine, the U England was quite different after the war. Um, very difficult. There was rationing and and Canada seemed like the land of opportunity. So they went for it. I rolled along about three or four years later. <laughs> and he was in the military. So when you were growing up, you traveled a lot, right? By the time I came around, my father was just about leaving the armed forces because they amalgamated the forces in Canada. And he joined the UN as a peacekeeping observer and went to India-Pakistan during the war there. From there, became a diplomat, and uh, then we traveled the world after that. Around when I was about six years old, we moved to Europe. So you spent time in, in Portugal, I read, in Austria, in Israel. You, you got around. Yeah. Uh, if you want some air miles, give me a call. <laughs> and then when the family came back to Canada, you moved around as well, living in both Ottawa and then eventually growing up in Vancouver. Correct. Yeah. So let's talk about music. When was the, what's your first musical memory? When did you decide, hey, this is something that I'm passionate about? I can remember listening to music in the radio. Things would come on when you were driving in the car. And it was, it was quite funny because the Beatles, whether it was 1964, She Loves You, that was a quite a funny song to sort of mimic to drive your parents crazy. Right. And so I can remember that song. And then it becomes very blurry because there's a lot of, a lot of music in the 60s. And a lot of it was from the radio because for the majority of the 60s, I lived in Portugal and there wasn't really access to record stores or and the radio there was very mixed it was mostly sports or news and then there was some music so i would get sort of the hit parade from that or from the world service the bbc from my father's radio 
than whatever your friends would introduce you to. So if if your friends were introducing you to music, school was a great place for right. finding out what was going on. Right. And and when do you remember buying your first guitar? I was given a guitar by my father when I was about nine because I wanted to be a drummer. And there was no way they were going to let me have a drum kit in the house. So <laughs> um, my father had taken us to Spain to see flamenco because my father loved flamenco music. And as it turns out, so do I. <laughs> but when he took us to the to the show, I was just bolo. I'd never seen anything like that. So he got me a, a Spanish guitar. And that was my was Christmas present, 1968. Wow. You were super young. When you... But I don't think he, it, it was, it was never like, oh, he's going to be a musician. You know, it was just like, let's just... He, he likes music, so let's just give him something to <laughs> fiddle with. Right. I, I read somewhere that you bought your first guitar yourself, which was a Strat in London, but then you were listening to the Humble Pie Rock and the Fillmore album, and you're like, um, you know, Strat's fine, but that's not really for me. I want a Les Paul. I bought an imitation of Stratocaster in Reading, England, in 1970 with my uncle. And that was my first electric guitar. I loved Humble Pie, but I also loved Deep Purple a lot. Right. And so the Stratocaster was really just being a fan of Richie Blackmore. Right. And then when you were back in Vancouver, you started focusing more on music and less on school and started seeing a lot of the bands that would come to town. I heard you say that the first concert you ever saw was David Bowie on the Diamond Dogs tour. Yeah, that was before Vancouver. That was when I was living in Ottawa. Um, Got it. That was my first show. (laughs) But you saw Zeppelin, you saw Elton John, you saw T-Rex, you saw Tina Turner. So this was quite the education, not necessarily the traditional school education, but you were really getting the education of, of live rock and roll. Yeah, I mean, it was interesting to think about those concerts back then because it was so different to how concerts are now. Things were very basic. And when I think about it now, the Bowie the Bowie Diamond Dogs tour was quite elaborate compared to a lot of other bands because the stage set was this enormous sort of cityscape of buildings and things that they had behind the band. So it was quite an introduction to theatrics. And then... Moving along to see Elton John, a Yellow Brick Road tour. That concert might have been the one that really sort of cemented things to me because I love the way he crosses the boundaries of tempo. So there'd be mid-tempo, there'd be a high-energy song, there'd be a, a slow song. The two hours just went by. Right. And I thought, yeah, that's that's the best show I've ever seen. So it's still actually, to this day, the best thing I've ever seen. I saw him a couple of years ago, and he's still as good as ever. I mean, it's crazy how good he is. Did any of these shows inspire you not only to play music, but to write songs? I had a band in the basement, and what happened was there was sort of a three-piece. The bass player says, so who's going to sing? And I said, well, you know, we'll have to get somebody. But I'll, I'll sit in until we find somebody. And... We just never found anybody. (laughs) Did you think of yourself as a singer back then when you were seeing Bowie and when you were seeing Elton John, were you saying, I'm going to be that guy like to the left playing guitar. I'm not going to be the guy in front of the microphone. 
I didn't really think any of that. I was just thinking, this is great to be here. My aspirations were just about the basement and then getting to see what I could see. I had no sort of delusions of grandeur. I wanted to be in, in music somehow. Right. And so, How did you get out of the basement? I started auditioning. I realized pretty early on that any time I auditioned as a guitar player, I didn't get the gig. And any time I auditioned as a singer, I got the gig. And so, and so I just went from band to band. And then finally I started auditioning for studio work. I ended up being, you know, I would be the backup singer for, for other artists or I would do sort of group work with vocals in the studio. That was kind of the, my first real education on, on how to, uh, work with other musicians that were really, really good. And for example, I can remember, I didn't know how to read music. And as as a group vocalist, you had to be able to read to to get through the session. And so I remember one session, I think it might even my first first session with charts. And the, the pianist music director gave out the charts to the four singers. And he said, okay, you're on top, you're third, you're you're the fifth and you can double double him on the third or whatever it was and he goes two three four and everybody comes in except muggins <laughs> and he he finished whatever it was 30 seconds and he goes is there a problem i said no 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 i was just listening i want to hear it one time and i would memorize exactly what he wanted me to do memorize the you know the melody that he played and then i would sing it back and then i would eventually learn how to follow notes, but I was totally flying by a seat of my pants. I, I didn't know what I was doing, but I got the gig because I could sing with other people. And how old were you at this point? 16. And had you dropped out of school? Yeah, I dropped out when I was 15. And how, how did your parents feel about that? Well, interestingly, I was talking to my mother about it today. Uh, I said, you know, I, I just basically I thanked her. I said, you know, thanks. We wouldn't be here if it wasn't for you. She goes, oh no, no, it was you, darling. I said, well, no, because you gave me the chance to follow what I wanted to do. You let me go. That was everything. Because if you know, if she had stopped me, we, we might not have got there. But I think it came down to one thing: that there wasn't anything in the fridge, and she knew that she couldn't really afford to keep two boys. So if one was going to go out of work, it would be quite good. And where, where was your dad at that point? My parents had divorced, and so... So it was just you, your mom, and your brother? That's right. And then at what point did you start getting paid for the work and realize that, hey, you know, this is actually... It's okay that I dropped out of school because, you know, I can make some money doing this. Well, I never got paid in any of the bands I was with. That's why I sort of opted to go and do studio work. And I can remember getting a check for 500 bucks. It came through the mail. I, I just honestly couldn't believe it because that means I could pay the rent and I could buy groceries. And I, I showed it to my brother. I said, look, 500 bucks. I'm taking you out for dinner tonight. <laughs> Little did you know. It was kind of like the best incentive, uh, aside from parking cars on our lawn. And so at what point do you meet Jim Valance in this story? I met Jim in 1978. 
I just turned 18 and we met in a music store. I kind of knew who he was because he was like the, the go-to drummer in Vancouver. But he was also the songwriter for a band which I really liked, a local band called Prism. Our meeting was brief, but how about have a cup of tea and talk music sometime? And we did that within a couple of days. And as we speak today, this is January 11th, it's 45 years that I've known Jim. Wow. And you guys still work so well together. Yeah, and it was uh, it was almost instant as a team because we we both had similar interests. We both liked rock music. We liked the Beatles and the band and Zeppelin and ACDC. We liked all these groups that were so we had so much in common musically. The songs just started to flow. Do you remember the first song you and Jim wrote, or the first good song that you and Jim wrote? Well, I can remember the first song we wrote. It was called "Don't Turn Me Away." I remember when we were working together, we worked in his basement. He had a snare drum and a bass drum and a hi-hat and one cymbal. And working on a small eight-track TAC, or it might have even been four-track, it was the first time I'd actually seen someone hit a click track, <laughs> go and sit and do the drum part, and then say, okay, let's, let's do the rest of it. And then he played bass, and then I played guitar and do a vocal. And within... No time, we'd have a song, and then we'd have another song, and then another song. But, you know, the thing was, we thought we were great, but nobody else did. Because every time <laughs> trying to get record companies to be interested in doing something, and you used to get the thing, oh, do you, do you have a band? No. Uh, do you have a manager? No. All right. See you later. That's how it was. And finally, I signed a songwriting deal under the condition that, they released some songs of mine. And so in 1980, my album, my debut album came out. You signed as a writer, but there was a stipulation that the songs had to be released commercially, so A&M released the songs? I signed for $1. $1 to the record company or $1 to the publishing company? Well, it was, it was the same thing. <laughs> I, I was signed to them, and that publishing company was going to release my album. Got it. And so I signed for a dollar. You recoup? Uh, I think we recoup now. <laughs> was the publishing company actively pitching your songs to outside artists at the same time? They did have a, a bit of success. It, it wasn't anywhere near what Jim and I were able to do. And I, I didn't learn that until much later. You know, coming from the source was much better than coming from a publishing company because it was easier because I would have a connection with the singer or the writer or the... Right. But they did. they didn't introduce me to some good covers and so it was okay what was the first song that you wrote that got cut by somebody else do you remember that uh there was a quite a few of back when turn overdrive um bonnie tyler did straight from the heart before i did wow ian lloyd did a bunch of songs of mine i don't know if you remember ian lloyd he was with atlantic yeah ian lloyd was with stories right yeah and ian ian did a couple of my songs um Bless him. And here's a here's the thing about connection. Ian was good friends with Mick Jones from Foreigner and Lou Graham. And Lou used to sing on Ian's records. And one day when we were playing in the club in 1980, Mick Jones came and saw my show and came and hung out and chatted with me. And 
He says, oh, yeah, I know you because you work with Ian. And I said, oh, yeah, I know you. You're friends with Ian, too. Yeah. And so fast forward a year later, when Foreigner was going out with Foreigner 4, Mick gave me a shot as the opening act for Foreigner. Wow. And that was the – that and Ray Davies giving me a shot. Those two tours changed everything for me in America. Wow. That's crazy. And, and Lou Graham – did a bunch of, of background vocals on your albums, right? Yeah, I love Lou's voice. And um, I asked him when we were touring together if he'd come and sing on Cuts Like a Knife, and he, he came and sang on that album. Wow. So at what point when A&M releases your music do you start to click as an artist? Does it happen on the first album? Do you have to wait for the second album? Is it, you know, I, I always talk about how when we were growing up, the artists that we loved the most were the ones who were able to really develop over a series of albums, you know, finding themselves not only as writers and performers, but actually going and touring and playing, you know, 100 plus shows per cycle. So what was the experience with A&M releasing your music? Oh, it was, it was amazing. It's way beyond already what I expected I'd ever achieve. So the fact that I had a record deal. You really want to go through all this? It's so boring. No, I, I think it's exciting. I mean, Bruce Allen comes in, so you have a manager, and he's still managing you, last I checked, to this moment, you know, 40 years later. But it's really, you know, that starts this process. The songs keep getting better. The records keep getting better. And, you know, obviously the live performance keeps getting better because you keep doing it. This is something that's interesting about today, or sorry, yesterday, sorry, yesterday versus today. If you think about it, to have given an artist two albums to figure out what you're doing, and that's basically what I had. I, my first album did nothing. My second album did about the same. Um, although the second album started to get traction in America thanks to the tours I'd done and a couple of really nice programmers that gave me a shot. Right. So by the time the third album came out, which was Cuts Like a Knife, uh, I had a bit of a bass. Right. But Cuts Like a Knife, if I think back on it now, I can remember that even though it was the first time we'd done a, a platinum album, I didn't make any money because all I was doing was paying back what yeah, I... The advances. The advances at, and, and the, the tour support and everything. So At that point, that, it was probably more than $1. Yeah, but I still have the dollar, by the way. <laughs> the um, the second album, You Want It, You Got It, that you mentioned, I you know, legend has it that you originally wanted the album to be called Brian Adams Hasn't Heard of You Either. Is that true? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, was, I, was working, I was working with Bob Clearmountain, and I, I said it to Bob as a joke, and Bob said, that's what you should definitely call your album that. <laughs> I ran it past the record company. They're like, oh, no, no, you're just going to, piss people off don't do that and I was like really it's quite funny and I'm like no nah, you, you can't call it your album that and I was like, okay <laughs> and, and, but to this day I wish I had because I knew it was a better title than what right well and then cuts like a knife like you mentioned in 83 you know comes out and they're just hit after hit straight from the heart cuts like a knife this time best was yet to come 40th anniversary, by by the way, of that album on the 18th of wow. January. Happy anniversary, Cuts Like a Knife. 
Yeah. And then, you know, you never know what's going on in the rest of the world, you know, technologically, because at this point, MTV is becoming, you know, quite the cultural force. And I remember as a kid coming home after school one day, turning on MTV and seeing this video of a girl jumping into a pool that had no water in it, which was the Cuts Like a Knife video. Cuts like a knife! How important was MTV for you at that point? Super important. The only thing about MTV was that it was on cable. And so unless you had cable, you didn't get MTV. So it was becoming a big thing and more people wanted to get cable because of it. Perhaps it was like the Instagram of the day. You know, everybody wanted to be part of it. Right. It became massive. My video was one of the few that were out there at the time, you know, with Madonna and Duran Duran and Michael Jackson and all those artists, we were sort of the mainstay of MTV in 1983. Right, which was, you know, kind of to be, MTV, I think, went on the air in 81. So they were a couple of years, you know, into their life and they were finding their way and you really helped them. Something I didn't know until, you know, just getting ready for, for this uh, conversation was the actress, the model who was in the swimming pool. At the same year, 1983, she was also in Michael Jackson's Billie Jean video, which I didn't know. I think the director fancied her. Right, same director of both both songs. But I did find out that her name is Raquel Pena, and she now sells real estate, in case you were curious. Ah, well, that's cool. <laughs> so the Cuts Like a Knife tour plays over 100 dates in the U.S., and I also didn't realize a, uh, a dear friend of mine was your drummer on that tour, Frankie LaRocca. I had no idea, you know. Lesson. The, the late, great Frankie LaRocca. So all of this is leading up to album number four, Reckless, which is the rocket ship. So when you were recording Reckless with Clear Mountain, did you guys know that, you know, kind of like the runway is, is greased and we are ready for takeoff? Well, nothing's ever a given, is it? But there was a few songs I thought that radio would like. Certainly the vibe of the record sounded good in my car. <laughs> Where did you guys record that one? Uh, we recorded the basic tracks in Vancouver, and then we went to Power Station in New York. And this is the first album in history to sell over a million copies in Canada. It was your first number one album in America. Six singles all were smashes in America. Run to You, Somebody, Heaven, Summer of 69, One Night Love Affair, It's Only Love with Tina. What was it like singing with Tina Turner, who, as a kid, you were seeing her concerts? I met her in 81. Jim and I had written a song. We wanted to work with Tina. And, and this is before she got a record deal with Capitol and everything. So I w went backstage after the show. It was a tremendous show she'd done. I saw her wrapped up and she was coming down the hallway. I said, excuse me, Miss Turner. My name is Brian. I, I have a song for you. She goes, oh, thank you very much, dear. And she took my cassette tape and 
disappeared out the back door into the limo. Of course, it wasn't the song that we ended up doing. The song we wrote was a song called Lock Up Your Sons because Tina's in town. Never did anything. But <laughs> it was the beginning of, of my, my long romance of working with, with Tina. And so when Reckless was happening, Carter, her producer, also a friend of mine, uh, he produced songs for Prism, which I'd written back in sort of late 70s. Carter phoned me and said, do you have a song for Tina? We're doing an album. I said, oh, yeah, I'm doing this album. I can't, I I put all my songs into this. Do you think she would do a song on my album? And he said, I don't know. Send it to me. And I sent it and never heard anything. So we're just about finishing the album. And I heard Tina was coming to town again. At this time, she wasn't playing club. She was the opening act for Lionel Richie. I thought, I gotta, I gotta give this one more shot. So I, I found out who her manager was. It's a really nice guy called Roger Davies. I sent the tape to her manager and said, would you, would Tina like to come and sing on my album? And I got an immediate response back saying, Tina would like to meet you. Please come to the show. So of course I went I can I can honestly remember this whole scenario because when you're a fan of somebody, you don't forget anything. And I can remember seeing her come down the hallway and she had this big wig and I can hear her saying, where is he? Where is he? Someone said, oh, that, that's him over there, scrawny little kid over there. So I went over, I sort of met her halfway and I said, hi, I'm Brian. She goes, I love this song. Wow. I said, wow, would you want, do you want to come and sing on it? She says, yeah, I'd love to. I said, can you come in tomorrow? She says, I can't. Wow. So we recorded it the next day. So that becomes a smash, and then you continue to tour. Ultimately, you switch producers, and you start working with Mutt Lang in the early 90s. What was that like? Obviously, a much different record producer than Bob Clearmount. Truly. I was a huge fan of Mutt's, too, because, you know, going back to ACDC and Highway to Hell and the Foreigner 4 album, because I was on tour with Foreigner, and I just remember hearing those songs. I said, wow, it's such a great record. And so we checked the credits out. He had to pour over album covers. and see, it kept seeing the guy's name come up. I went to Battery Studios in London and with Jim in 87, or might have been 86, actually, and just sat there because I knew that Mutt liked to work there. And, and so I eventually met Mutt and just said, hey, you know, we should do something sometime. He was like... I'm kind of busy. <laughs> I said, okay. So we put out Into the Fire. And then I'm sort of going ahead of myself here, but he, just giving you the sort of timeline. In 89, I called him and said, do you want to write some songs together? He said, yeah. And that's how it started. Wow. So the process was obviously different working with Mutt 
on the Waking Up the Neighbors record than it was with Clear Mountain. It took a lot longer, right? It's not about we're going to deliberately make a long record. It's about do you have the best songs that you can possibly write and the best performances to make those songs great? And so when I played him the music I had from for this for what was to be Waking Up the Neighbors, he said, that's that's pretty good. You know, you got you keep your fan base with that. But I think we could do better. I said, well, what do you want to do? He says, start again. <laughs> and so we started again. And first song we wrote from the album, Waking Up the Neighbors, was Thought I Died and Gone to Heaven. And then the next song was Can't Stop This Thing We Started. And then we just got into this groove of writing songs. And we had song after song after song. And I, I wondered at what point we were going to actually stop and put a record out. And so we started mixing. And then I got a, a call from David Kirschenbaum. David was the one that introduced me to Clear Mountain. David says, I got this piece of music for a film. Would you be interested in working or writing a song for this film? I said, well, send it. Let's have a listen. And so he sent me a cassette with 45 minutes of score and a script. And I listened to it. And I thought, wow could be something. And I said to Mutt, what do you think? And he says, I don't know. I read the script and in the script, there was a line where he says, would you do it for your king? And she says, no, but I would do it for you. <laughs> Such a simple thing, right? And then I said, Mutt, I got this idea. Why don't we take that line and make a song out of it? And he says, yeah, everything I do, I do it for you. And so was the score that Kirschenbaum sent you the cassette of, was the score Michael Kamen's score? It was. It was Michael Kamen's score. And we took a fragment of that score and we created a song around it. Well, that song becomes a monster, number one record, Seven Weeks in America. And it started this creative three-way relationship between you, Mutt, and Michael Kamen, which you would later revisit with another movie song with All for Love. What happens with songwriters and when you, when you spend so much time with people in that kind of environment where you're creating and you're creating something out of nothing, they become your brothers, these guys. And so Michael would call me up in the night. He would say, I'm having trouble with the director of this film and I think I've written something really nice. Would you, would you come over and have a listen to this? And I'd say... Michael, it's like 1230. He says, yeah, I know, I know. But just, can you come over? All right. So I go over there and I'd listen to what he'd done. And that particular story is is pertinent to the song, Have You Ever Read of the Woman? He, uh, he'd written this piece of music. After he played it, I said, Michael, I think that's probably one of the most beautiful things I've ever heard. Have you got anything else? He goes, yeah, I've got this other idea too. He played that for me. I said, well, that sounds like you could put the two of them together and you could make a song out of that. He said, that's a great idea. I said, I'm, I said, I'm, I'm calling Mutt, you know. <laughs> and, then, and then the three of us would sit down and 
we'd carve out a song out of it. You love a woman, you tell her that she's the one. She needs somebody to tell her that it's gonna last forever. Tell me, have you ever really, really, really ever loved a woman? And we did that over and over in the 90s. Wow. We would have kept doing it, except for poor old Michael. He he had uh, MS, and he just, he left us. Yeah, so sad. He's so talented. Oh, I, I don't I don't think, uh, I don't think I've ever cried so much as the day that I found Michael had gone. With, um, so have you ever loved a woman? Everything I do, I do for you. But there was also All for Love with, with Rod Stewart and Sting. And what was that like? You know, was that something created by you, Mutt and Michael, and then somebody calls Sting and somebody calls Rod and says, hey, let's do this? Um, there's, there's a huge backstory to that, but I don't know if you have time. <laughs> well, let's, let's get the, uh, the Reader's Digest version. The Reader's Digest version was Michael phoning me saying, uh, let's write a song for this film. Can you write a song for this? I said, well, let's get together. So we got the team together and we basically structured the song, but we hadn't got the lyrics. And Mutt and I went to Paris. We were working on Please Forgive Me. And Michael was calling me saying, I got to tell them in two days if we got a song or not. I said, okay, hang on. So we went upstairs and we knocked out the lyric. So I immediately phoned Michael because I knew he'd be up. And I said, we got it, got the song. Sting was my label mate on A&M, so I called Sting right away. And I said, would you like to do this? He said, yeah, I'd love to. And then I had a few other ideas on who I would love to have had. I happened to bump into Rod's manager at my accountant's office. <laughs> and I said, oh, uh, Arnold, do you think Rod would want to sing with Sting and I on a song? And he went, I, this, I hadn't even asked Sting if he was cool with it. And he said, well, I don't know, let's hear the song. And so he came over to my house and I played him the song and he literally hit the tape machine and dialed Rod and said, Rod, listen to this. You're singing on this. Wow. So then it was just a question of putting it together. And I, I asked Chris Thomas to produce it. We had, a, we had a great ride doing that. That was fun. Let's make it awful, awful And you wanted three singers on that because it was for the Three Musketeers, right? Correct. Wow. Amazing. So, you know, we got to wrap up in a minute, but I think I'd be remiss and get a lot of um, hate mail if I don't ask you if there's anything that you would want to tell us about Summer of 69, going back a couple of albums, because, you know, arguably it's, it's one of your most famous, if not most famous, song. And, you know, the... Maybe just one or two lines about the creation of that song before we move on and wrap up. Sure. It was originally called The Best Days of My Life. And I thought it was funny to do a play on 69, trying to be provocative. (laughs) 
when we were doing the demo, I just threw it in there. I said, back in the summer of 69, me and my baby in a 69. Jim thought it was a great idea. Okay, then it was about trying to make a record out of it because we had a demo and I cut it with Bob and I was like, mm, it's pretty good. It's just not, it's not firing. And I happened to be in a bar in Vancouver watching a ska band and the drummer was this like 21 year old guy called Pat Stewart and he was just unbelievable and I I called Keith my guitarist I said Keith you got to come down you got to hear this drummer I think I want to record him on 69 and one at Love Affair and a few other songs and to see what we get so I went up to Pat and I said hi man have you ever recorded in a studio before he goes no I haven't I said can you come in tomorrow? And he said, yeah. And so he came in and we recorded the song and he brought the life to that track. Interestingly, Pat's playing with us live now. Wow. So has he been with you the whole time? No. Uh, I, I had a drummer called Mickey Curry for years and years, and Mickey basically retired. And I asked Pat if he'd come and join us. Wow. Picking up right where you left off. So we'd be remiss if we didn't you know, mention the Brian Adams Foundation and also your photography, which a lot of people may not know if they look at album covers by Annie Lennox or Amy Winehouse or Status Quo or Diana Krall. That's your photography. Occasionally I get it right. <laughs> so I worked, with, I worked with this band called Rammstein uh, last year, which was really fun too. We did their album cover. And there's a list of famous artists that you have photographed, and it's everybody, you know, from Hillary Clinton to Jennifer Aniston to Gwyneth Paltrow to, I would normally call something like that a side hustle, but it sounds like that's a profession where you stand out in the field as well. I try, man. I try to keep myself busy. And then you and I met when we worked together on the musical that you and Jim wrote with the ad musical adaptation for Broadway of the film Pretty Woman. So was that the first time that you had written for theater? It was. And how was that experience for you? Well, it was excellent. Um, it was really one of the most challenging things I've done as a writer. Uh, I, I, I often... Phone Jim and say, Jim, you want to do it again? He was like, no. <laughs> <laughs> but I I loved it because it it was so different to anything I'd done before. Well, if you listen to some of those songs on the cast recording or even your versions of those songs that you later cut yourself, I mean, they're as good as, as anything that you've written. It was a pleasure working with you guys on it because the songs are just so good. That song, You and I, you know, in my opinion, is as good as anything that you've ever written.
as my father would say, blessings upon you. <laughs> so, you know, that that was the past into the present. What what does the future look like for you? Well, it's 2023 and uh, we're going back on the road. Uh, we've got American tour coming up. We've got an Asian tour coming up, Japanese tour coming up. And that's all before the summertime. Wow. Do you still love touring as much as you did? Yeah, I, I do. Um, I kind of have this thing with myself when I go on and I look down and I see all those songs. It's just a joy when the next one comes up. You know, people always ask, oh, you must be quite tired of playing the same songs every night. But it's not like that because no matter what happens and no matter how many times you've played the same song, when you get up there, everybody in the audience makes it a new thing. Right. And so that's what's exciting about live. It's never the same twice. And it also must be great to see new faces and younger faces and kids who are discovering your music through TikTok or Instagram or however they're finding it or their parents or their grandparents played it for them. But this is, you know, this is evergreen music that you've created that's going to be around forever. Well, that's really kind of you to say, Pete. It's been a fun ride and we're still writing it. And like you mentioned earlier that, you know, we got nominated for a, a Grammy this year and I'm, I'm not holding my breath, but it was such a nice thing to have happen. It was, it was the sweetest thing I could possibly have imagined because it just, it reminded me that there were other people listening to the songs in, in my, my peers. And so. Yeah. And it's a record, even, it's a record that you made again with Mutt. So it's, you know, creatively, it's, you know, kind of that gift that keeps giving too, because like you said before, when you create magic with someone, that doesn't go away. And it's it's a brotherhood. Which is awesome. And, it is. You know, all good things to you for the year ahead, and I really appreciate you uh, spending time with us today, Brian. Thank Adams. you. Pleasure to talk to you. Thanks so much. We'll see you soon. Thanks to Brian Adams for joining us this week. Brian shows no sign of slowing down with tour dates this year in Southeast Asia and the United States, with more to come. You can stay connected with Brian at his website, brianadams.com, where you can link to all of his social media to keep up with everything he's got going on. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next time for another episode of Rock and Roll High School. Rock and Roll High School is a presentation of Pure Tone Music in association with Warner Music. Produced by Pete Ganbarg, with assistance from Craig Rosen, Ron Robinson, Joe Pomerico, Kelly Sayer, Chris Costello, Willie Fastino, Catherine Hoppy, Kayla Flores, Zach Kornhauser, and Rich Mahan. Please visit our website at rockschoolpodcast.com for more info on past and future shows. All rights reserved. Rock, 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 rock on high school.